Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnicki. And one of these days, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, Sean. Wow, that's really Today's nice Today's not the day. Today's not the day. Oh. And uh, what we do on Civil Action is we try to review recent cases that have come down from the United States Supreme Court, Ninth Circuit, California Supreme Court, California Court of Appeal, and uh, talk about the cases that have some relevance on plaintiff's practices. Today is no exception. We've it's got like mini law school. Law school in 22 minutes. With the worst professors you can ever find. But a lot less expensive than law school. Because how much do we charge? Zero dollars. Right. It's free. You don't even have to subscribe. You just have to put up with us. You have to listen to us to get the information. And good news. So we're sorry about that. Good news. Only 21 more minutes. (laughs) Okay. Feels like an eternity. Okay. Today we have a set of four cases we're going to talk about. We have a California Court of Appeal case that has to do with trail immunity. Uh, it's the second time we're talking about trail immunity. So. I thought it was trial immunity. Trail immunity. Nope, it's not trial immunity. Um, then we're going to talk about the standard for gross negligence and immunity when it comes to, a, I guess, a, an accident. Dangerous at a, condition, at a, public property. That's right. Um, and then you're going to find out about things that Brian nor I cannot do, like racing cars or things like that. Then we're going to talk about a, a United States Supreme Court case, which I hear is like one of the higher courts in the Highest country? court in the country. Highest, wow. Based in Washington, D.C. Wow. Um, and that has to do with the Discovery Rule and F- uh, Fair Debt uh, Collection Practices Act. And then lastly, we have another California Court of Appeal case that has to do with the single single employer doctrine and sending uh, and a religious organization and a religious and organization a, yeah. a post trial decision. You don't you, you don't see a lot of post trial decisions pu- to turn into published opinions because they're so usually voluminous. But more often than not, it's a it's a pre trial decision, a summary judgment demur, something like that that ends the case up in the court. Uh, so let's get started. What do you say? Okay. First case is Sally Loeb versus the County of San Diego. So I guess Sally was in a county park and campground, she, campground, like a campground, yeah. right? Yeah. She hurt herself when she was uh, walking over uneven uh, on an uneven concrete pathway. Right. So it was like a pathway leading to a restroom that um, came from where this campground area was. But it was a dual-purpose park. It wasn't just a camping park. It also sounds like it was a community park, but there were campsites in the park, right? Right. And the first thing to understand about this is that the um, county argued in this case that, and ultimately got out on the ground of what's called trail immunity, not to be confused with trial immunity. Trail immunity. Trail. I don't know what trial immunity is that you keep repeating. Trial immunity is like where you act like an idiot in trial and nobody gets mad at you because they just feel sorry for you. Wow, that would be nice. Right. That would be really nice right. Yeah, for me. Uh, so trail immunity. Government Code Section 831.4. Has a couple uh, of important aspects yep. to it. And it, the, the, basis of the, the basis for it is it's supposed to encourage governmental entities to open up their property so that the public can use the property, right? Right. And the standard for the use of that property is um, any type of, well, there's different sections, but the relevant one here is a road, uh, a road which provides access to fishing, hunting, camping, hiking, riding, water sports, recreational or scenic activity. What water sports take place in the restroom? (laughs) Because that's where this trail led to. But here's the real that's problem. That's a whole different can of worms, Brian. Here, here's I don't the, know if that's appropriate. That's not. The, this is a family show. This is a family show. Brian. We have families that listen to our show? <laughs> Presumably. They must be very um, sad But, but really, in, the, in that list that I read off, there's one category in there that's super broad. That's recreational. 
So anything can fall into that. So until the point of, I think, they were, where they were arguing over the uh, special verdict form, um, Loeb had taken a position that there was no recreational activity. And I guess at that point, uh, the lawyer conceded that there may have been recreational activity or it was used for recreational purposes. And at that point, the court granted non-suit. But prior right. to that, what and had you happened? Get, well, you get straight into the dual purpose is what right. I was going to say. Dual purpose trail, which is a trail that could be used for recreational activity or could just simply be used to go to a bathroom, right? Right. And in here, what they really focused on was what the statute provided was whether or not this would fall inside the statute. Um, and the court ultimately concluded that it did. Why? Um, because of that dual purpose. could have been used for both, right? Right. And this case, though, specifically, although I don't think it breaks any ground, I think the really important thing, and we'll talk about a couple aspects of this case in a moment, but I think the important thing to know is that if you're a lawyer and you're interviewing a case or you're considering taking a case and it involves something that happened at a public park or a public campground, uh, this trail immunity is pretty substantial. Yeah, it's pretty broad. Uh, you got to be careful. But look, I mean, there's exceptions to these broad rules. So if you fit in there, sure, go go fight that fight. But otherwise, you got to be very careful. And keep in mind, by the way, they won on MSJ. The plaintiff won on summary judgment here. Right. And then sadly took it all the way up to trial and the case gets thrown out before the jury can even reach a verdict. And But some of the exceptions to trail immunity are like a bike path, and that's one of the things that we're trying to argue, or a sidewalk that may run adjacent to a park, but it's really part of the city sidewalk system. That's not a trail. Uh, and and what I thought was interesting about this case was one thing that they argued was, look, you shouldn't get the benefit of trail immunity because the plaintiff in this case paid a $3 fee to enter the park, right? Right. And they were trying to liken it to other commercial enterprises where the governmental entity may operate a commercial enterprise but they don't get the benefit of immunity. Okay, immunity, like gave, a golf course or... Or a, a boat ramp. Boat Those ramp. are two examples. Yeah. And what the court said here was the payment was trivial, and I thought that was interesting. So there's a trivial standard in the law that I'd never heard before. Right. I, where do we... Where's where so that fine line? How much trivial. was the fee here? Do you Three remember? bucks. Three bucks. So if it was four, would it be trivial? I don't know. Can you tell me, know. sir? How, how much is trivial? How much is trivial? Trivial is different to you than it is to me. That's, right. That's uh, that, yeah. When that's like when a witness answers a question at depot, and you're like, "Come on, hundred dollars is that trivial, sir?" Yeah, I mean, at a hundred dollars, it's probably not trivial. But it depends on what the action is. Is three dollars to camp overnight trivial? Maybe. Is ten dollars to put your boat in the in the um, in the lake trivial? Probably not. Is yeah. you know, is a fee to use a golf range or a golf course trivial? No, it probably isn't. So here, you're right, though. What the case ultimately turned on was that the plaintiff's lawyer conceded that the sidewalk was not only used for going to the bathroom, but was also used for people at nearby campgrounds or campsites. And I think that was the undoing, and that's what ultimately um, pushed them into the immunity here yeah. in this case. So there's a lesson there. Watch out for trail immunity. All right. Next case is Kim versus County of Monterey, and this involves the, what is it, the Laguna, Laguna Seca Raceway. Raceway in Monterey County, right? Yeah, where they, they shut it down sometimes, and they have private events there. Right, hired out to private events, that's yep. right. You and I can go there and race our cars nope. at 130 miles an hour. 140. 140. You're actually allowed to drive as fast as 140 miles an hour, and let me assure, and then you can also use motorcycles, 
Right. And I think where this poor fellow got injured was on a motorcycle, right. maybe going 140 miles. Would you take an hour. your motorcycle there, Brian? I don't have a motorcycle, and you should be grateful. I don't that's have probably a, motorcycle. a good thing. Yeah, that's right, probably a good right. thing. I would not take a car there. I would not take a motorcycle there. I wouldn't take a bicycle there. <laughs> I wouldn't take a skateboard there. You don't. You're not going to find for your own at, good and the good of others. That could, yeah. That's right. The Laguna Seca Raceway. But obviously, the first thing that strikes you when you look at this case is that this is an inherently dangerous activity, right? So you think assumption right. of the risk. Assumption risk, and there's releases. But but let's back up the facts here. Um, it's a raceway. It's actually a, a professional track, and they have apparently a drainage problem at the track. And when it rains, uh, they have some drainage issues. When, no, when it rains. Um, they, when it rains, they put sandbags to keep water out from a certain area and poor Mr. Kim. And where did the sandbags come from? Because I read this in the opinion from the the county. No, from the county. The county actually gave them the, the, the sandbags to use. Okay. Um, and Mr. Kim, I guess, slid out at a particular turn. And instead of going into the grass or whatever safe area there is at the edge of the turn, he crashed into the sandbags, which probably, what would happen if you crash into something going 140, mile, 140 miles an hour? Bad things. Bad things. So, and the court doesn't injured. go into any details, but they say he was severely injured. Um, and then they focus on the fact first that he did sign a release. So the first issue you've got there is this, this assumption of the risk. Yep. And what the court looked at, though, was, well, okay, so procedurally what happened in this case? Do you remember? Uh, there was a summary judgment filed. And what happened at the summary judgment? Um, so plaintiff here argued that there's gross negligence, because keep in mind, that's one way you can get around a release. And they had an expert uh, who presumably submitted a declaration, said that their conduct didn't meet the standard of care. Well, more than that, they said that it actually violated the standards that have been set for these kind of private race that's courses right. yeah. or these kinds of private race events, right? Yeah. And, and the and other side had no rebuttal evidence. To no, no rebuttal expert, no, no rebuttal, rebuttal expert. to that whatsoever. They they simply went on the grounds that they can't have a uh, legal obligation here. Yeah. And so um, this case comes back after summary judgment. It comes, sorry, it goes up to the Court of Appeal on summary judgment. And the first thing they look at is whether or not the governmental entity can be liable for a dangerous condition. Of course, under certain circumstances, they can be. What are those circumstances? I'm glad you asked, Sean. When they increase the risk inherent in an activity? And um, there's negligent or wrongful conduct on behalf of the public entity, right? Right. And or there's constructive notice of a defect. Right. So if the defendant's able to affirmatively demonstrate that the plaintiff can't establish that there's any kind of ordinary negligence, at least as a threshold, they're done. So what are the the standards, Sean, back to law school, because this is 22 minutes of law school, what are the standards of negligence claim? Uh... Offer and acceptance. Nope. No. Nope. That's contracts. What that about was the duty, other class you took? Duty, breach, causation, damages. Right. So yeah. they, they look at these factors and they're going to evaluate whether or not there's duty, breach, causation, and ultimately damages. Yeah. And what do they find? They find that there is. There, every element is met. And um, the first thing you have to look at, though, in these cases is in a sporting event or a sporting contest or any client that there is primary assumption of the risk, which would preclude liability for injury arising from those risks which are anticipated. Right. The risks inherent in that activity. And over here, the defendants argued that having sandbags on the side of the racetrack is a risk inherent in motorcycle racing. And the court found that they they concluded that having those sandbags is not a risk that's inherent. And by putting the the trial court. 
That's right. The trial court concluded that having the risk was not was was not a risk. That's right. Yeah, the trial court concluded the first thing I said, which was having sandbags w- was was a risk that's inherent in motorcycle racing. And the court of appeal said, no, that's not an inherent risk. You increase the risk by adding those sandbags. Right. And then they looked to whether or not there was a breach and whether or not it was gross negligence. And the standard for gross negligence is. I don't. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Oh my god! Us, it's, it's a want of even scant, scant or care. Ex- extreme departure from the ordinary standard of care. That's right. So in this case, they found that, but then they went a little bit further and they went to determine whether or not, under these facts and circumstances, um, there would be any standard here that the um, defendant violated. So that's where we go back to Kim's expert. And Kim's expert had at least said this violated a standard of care and the, the race, it violated standard of care, and there was no contrary evidence. That's right. So the last part of this case, though, was whether or not professional racing standards could actually establish some kind of – it's not a law, it's not a, a rule, um, it's not a regulation, but it's a standard in sort of the industry for racing. And they said whether or not this was a relevant fact for determining liability, right? Yeah, and, and, it, and it is. And it is. Well, what they said is they said we're not going to go that far, but it's certainly we're not going to go that far because we don't need to go that far with this case, right? But a fact finder could certainly look. It, at those. it can it can be considered. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not it not it, it isn't automatically, but it can be considered. All right. So, what's our next case? This is from now the we're United States the Supreme Court. United and you were saying States where is that? Supreme Court in Washington, Sacramento, D.C. Nope. That's oh. the, do you know the California Supreme Court's located, Sean? Sa- Sacramento. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Nope. No. Downtown San Francisco. Oh wow! So yeah. it's Spring Street over here in downtown LA. No, this is Los Angeles. It's in San Francisco. <laughs> it's in downtown San Francisco. Okay. So all kidding Supreme aside, Court, how do you pronounce the name of this case? All kidding aside, Supreme Court. No, no, the case. The case. Uh, I call it Rotesky versus Clem. I don't know if my pronunciation is right. I like Rotesky. Rotkisk. Rotkisk versus Clem is how I'm going to pronounce it. But anyway, we could call them plaintiff and defendant. The Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, which is only marginally relevant. And if you're now listening to this going, geez, these guys are just going to talk about the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. It's a federal case that was came down in the United States Supreme Court. No, you would be wrong. You would be wrong for one important reason. This case really has to do with the discovery rule. And statutes of limitations. And statutes of limitations. So apparently what happened in this case is that Clem obtained a default judgment on a collection action in 2009 against Rotesky. And, but Rotesky doesn't claims he doesn't learn about it until 2014 when he's trying to refinance his house. Because it's a default. Presumably he didn't respond. And if we believe him, he didn't hear about it. He didn't know about it. He didn't know it. They made no effort to collect it. He said the first time he found out about it was 2014. He brings the case in the, I believe, in the Third Circuit. It really doesn't matter, but we'll say it's the Third Circuit. And the Third Circuit says, nope, um, it's a one-year statute of limitations from the violation of the act. You're late, sir. And, of course, that's ludicrous because if he didn't know about it, how could he have pursued it? But the that was number one. And then number two was he raised an issue of whether or not the equitable doctrine, also what we call the discovery rule sort of in California, applies and uh, the court analyzes. So one thing to understand when you're evaluating the United States Supreme Court case, I always look at the dissent and or any concurrence first because they usually do the best job of explaining what the majority is saying 
And that's the and they distilled the issues down. They they say, okay, here's the big issue here in this case. So who wrote uh, a concurrence in this case? Well, Brian? first of all, who wrote the actual opinion? The genius, legal genius, the Justice, legal genius, Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas, Justice Thomas. If you're listening, I'm very sorry, but I seriously <laughs> doubt you're listening to any podcast about the law. What if he's listening and he's upset? What if he if calls he me again, Brian? What if he calls you? What if he calls me? I didn't like what you said about me, Mister Cabotek. So what if you, he asks you to clerk for him? Yeah, I'll Would do you that. do that? You do sure. it. Sure. You do it. Sure. Sure. I'll the give up my law practice clerk, for a couple of years. clerk on the Supreme Court. Right. Why is your clerk asleep, <laughs> Justice Thomas? Because <laughs> he does old. that a lot. He's old. He does that a lot. Do they have a cafeteria in the Supreme Court? Probably. So one of the things here that's critical about this case is that um, the court finds and the concurrence agrees that under the one-year rule, the statute of limitations blown. So they say the statute, the, the, the plain language of the statute is one year and one year only, and that's all you get, right? And it doesn't have, in the statute at least, an exception for or one year from discovery or something. So this plain language, one year, that's it. Right. So what really comes down in this case is the concurrence written by Justice Sotomayor. She says, look, I'm going to agree with the opinion in its entirety because I don't think that um, Rotisky, the, the petitioner, raised the issue in both the Court of Appeal or in his petition for certiorari. And if you don't raise it there, you don't get to assert it. So I don't believe that that he has the grounds and standing in this case. However, she goes on to say, I don't agree with the major- majority that there's some sort of bad omen on these discovery rules. Now, the court never holds a discovery rule doesn't apply. They just sort of brush it aside. And she said, um, look, these discovery rules have been historically accepted. They're they're usually based on fraud. But in this case, Wartiski didn't raise it, so he can't bring it. But then you go to Justice um, Ginsburg, who writes the dissent, right? Yeah, and she disagrees, and she says— well, first of all, Justice Sotomayor, he did raise it in his uh, petition for cert, and here's where it is. Yeah, and, and which he which he even cites that he writes about the discovery rule applies to FDCPA, that's the Federal Debt Collection Act, claims based on false misleading, and she cites to it. And then she says, I don't agree that he forfeited in his petition for certiorari because his brief advocating advocated the court to adopt a general applicable discovery rule, and she actually quotes it. But... So humorous. Look, I, I, I think it should apply because what if someone was defrauded and isn't the whole point of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act to prevent people from fraudulently collecting on debts and, and taking advantage Look, of Do you know people? what sewer services of a complaint? Yeah, like very under underhanded. Well, actually throwing it in the sewer, you know, just never actually serving it on somebody and saying it was served. Oh, I didn't know that's that's right. Of- and so sewer service can happen, and then you find out like this poor guy did five years later that he's got a judgment against him. He didn't know about it before, and his statute's blown. So why would it's, kind of, it's you fraud? Have yeah, it's of fraud. It is. It's fraud. I mean. I don't know. So I we disagree with this case, but we're not on the Supreme Court, so I don't know not yet. what that has. Yeah, not yet. You, yeah, you, you never know. You never know. So President, la- is Obama going to nominate you? Have you? Has he been calling you? Are, are Obama's you- no longer the president of the United States. He's not. Oh, okay. So who, who's, the, who's the president now? We'll talk offline. What, what are the chances that that Trump would call you and say, Brian, what are you, what are you doing next year? Well, he's so unpredictable it could actually yeah, happen. Could actually, happen. my chances with him are much higher than with Obama. <laughs> That's probably true. Our last case today is Jeremiah Matthews versus Happy Valley Conference Center, which I'm taking was not a happy place. No. 
Um, this is an employment case, right? It's an employment case. It has to do with the singular empl- employer doctrine. So let's give it some context here. Uh, a, a, a young man who's like a just an employee of like the, an intern at uh, this. This is a conference center, right? It's a conference center that belongs to a church. It belongs to uh, the Community of Christ Church. Um, it's a wholly owned subsidiary of the church. Are you and, a member of the Community of Christ? No, sir. Okay, the, like like in, in general or the, or at the at the happy. You Valley, answered it I, so quickly. Yeah. I don't know. We'll just let it, your answer. No, I, stand. I don't want to be associated with them okay. based on what I read uh, here. Okay. Um, so a young man is like an happy intern Valley. there. He's an intern there, and he does some work for a more senior female who's uh, like the director of the whole yeah. camp. I think she's the director of the whole camp. Yeah. And then this young man, this intern, goes to the man, the maintenance manager who he must have been working under. And complain to him about sexual harassment from the um, the director, right? Right. This and, female and, director. And can you read us what the text messages said? Oh, Brian? with joy! Well, I good. have so to. So read- people could take this and edit and edit it later, and 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 just play it out of context and go, "Look what Brian Kavitek." So she admitted she sent the following text messages, and here's my favorite one: "Quote, did I ever tell you?" That the night you stayed at my house, I hardly slept a wink. I confess that I snuck in and watched you sleeping naked and surrounded by pillows and totally adorable. I, I've i never written anything like that, even to my <laughs> wife. Um, so, yeah, that, that clearly, all kidding aside, that was uh, harass, there was harassing emails. There's more than that. There's worse than that. And he reports it to a maintenance manager because I presume the kid was working for that maintenance manager. Right. And anyway, but the case isn't about the lawsuit the kid has for the sexual harassment. The, the case maintenance is, manager goes to the board, reports starts, it. They right. do a little investigation. I don't know what ultimately happens from and that they, investigation. And then they fire him. A month later. They fire him. Of right. all people. The guy yeah, who the guy reported yeah, it. A so, month later. Kind of bad conduct on the uh, church's part here. I think they fire tr- him because they say, like, you're looking for revenge or, or or you're trying to single people out, blah, 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 whatever it is. They fire him. So this complaint is filed, this retaliation complaint, and the it, it, it goes to trial. Right. And uh, they end up getting a verdict. Uh, $900,000, including punitive damages, plus a million dollars in attorney fees. So good result. Right. Um, and now post-trial, the— um, so really what the case comes down to, I mean, they raise a whole bunch of issues here, but I think the two most important issues, well, you and I kind of disagree because I don't think, yeah, you think I the think other in, issues in, that important, important, but the, the two issues that are really raised in this case of importance in my mind, and since this is my show, we'll it's say there's show. two important issues. It's the Brian Kabatek show. But you get to talk about the first one. Sure. The first issue that I think is more important is the single employer doctrine uh, issue in the integrated enterprises test. And the argument here is the church was saying, that's Happy Valley. Happy Valley is the one that employs these people. Happy Valley is the one that employed the creepy uh, supervisor that sent the text messages. We have the church has nothing to do with it. And uh, the court said, well, there's this test called the integrated enterprises test. And there's four factors, interrelation of operation, common management, centralized control of labor relations, and common ownership or financial control. And it kind of reminds me of the alter ego test, which I think is super important because you get defendants out there that are shady, that try to intentionally bankrupt up, themselves. Set up yeah. little sub-entities. Yeah, they and set up shells. shells. They yeah. sell, it's shells, basically. So I think tests like this are very important, whether it's for general civil liability um, or in employment context. And I think this is an employment principle. It's a single employer doctrine. So over here, they say that this test is met. There was evidence of all of these elements, and then they say that the, the, the most important factor being the centralized control of labor 
And here they say that they met it because there was clear evidence. And that's really the issue. When you get a case like this, look at the factors. Um, interrelationship of operations, common management, centralized control of labor relations, common ownership or financial control, and use these as your guideposts for your depositions. Right. And for oh, yeah. You got you to set up every one of those elements. You got to ask questions about who runs it, who makes the labor decisions for Happy Valley, who makes the labor decisions for the church, and kind of uh, you know compare and contrast the, the different answers. What I, so what do you think is the more important well, issue? Well, I didn't actually I disagree. I don't think it's the most important issue. I just thought it was more, an important issue. An I thought, important, I thought sure. the, the issue you brought up is an important issue in the case, but I also thought it's important because – they sued as well under FIHA, right? The State Act FIHA, right? Yep. Which stands for Fair Employment and Housing Act. And under FIHA has an exemption for any religious association or corporation not organized for private profit, right? right? And in in that under that, that means you really can't sue a church. You can't sue a religious organization of any kind. It doesn't have to necessarily be a church. And they're exempt under FIHA, which is exactly what they held here, even though this you know, community center or, or conference center or whatever was arguably for some profit motive, uh, and they had it set up as a separate entity for a reason, but the court said you can't sue under that. However, there's a silver lining for the plaintiff in this case, which is because they had sued under other grounds. And one on court, other grounds, the, yeah. And then one on other grounds, what the court ultimately said was even though the FIHA claim is is not valid, you can't pursue that, the ultimate claims and the jury findings were sufficient to establish the other grounds and the other causes of action, the punitive damages stand, the compensatory damages stand, um, and the attorney fee stand. So, And then to add insult to injury to the poor defendant, at the end, not only did plaintiff win, but plaintiff is also entitled to his costs on appeal, and costs on appeal always include attorney fees. Happy Valley is probably not so happy. Not anymore. so happy anymore. In fact, not they may so actually anymore. belong to the plaintiff now. So that's all we got for today, Shant. I thought that was pretty good. Exciting I, I think stuff. we learned a lot, and um, I hope you all learned. I hope you listen to our next uh, podcast that we have. Uh, you know, we really like to hear from you. If there's topics you'd like us to cover, we, we'd love to hear. And Sean, where can they find us? They can find us online at kbklawyers.com. They can find us on iTunes, I think, or Spotify and other places. And, and I hear Podbean, which I hadn't heard of, but it's apparently a very popular place for podcasts. Quite the thing. Shows how much I know. Um, but yeah, please uh, tune in again, and we'd love to hear your feedback. And uh, thanks for checking us out.